Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Cody Hunanian, Executive Director of the Student Debt Crisis Center, who assesses the strengths and weaknesses of President Biden's announced plan to forgive ten dollars to $20,000 in student loan debt. Jenna Grandy, of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, who reports on Big Oil's $2.6 million in contributions to Republican Party candidates who attempted to overturn the 2020 presidential election. And Paul Kassan, Operations Manager of the Whiteface Mountain Atmospheric Sciences Research Center in New York State, who talks about the work his team is doing to track industrial pollution and climate change. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In the capital of Rakhine State in western Myanmar, grasses growing in lots where homes occupied by Rohingya Muslims once stood. Families were burned out of this neighborhood in 2012 when thousands of Rohingya fled to refugee camps in Bangladesh. Five years later, three-quarters of a million Rohingya again fled to Bangladesh in what the United Nations called a genocide inflicted by Myanmar's army. The Rohingya now live under horrific living conditions in the largest refugee camp in the world. The conditions those refugees now endure living in fragile shelters, banned from education, work, and travel, have been faced by several generations who for decades have run from violence and discrimination at the hands of the Myanmar government. One senior aid worker for an international non-governmental organization said the UN has consistently failed to challenge the Bangladeshi government over repressive refugee camp policies, such as mandating that all shelters be temporary, restricting education and movement, and relocating tens of thousands of people to an island camp vulnerable to extreme weather. The future for the Rohingya seems ever dimmer after the Myanmar army staged a coup last year, overthrowing the nation's democratically elected government. For decades, the Nonpartisan League of Women Voters played an important role in U.S. elections by sponsoring debates on candidate forums. The group has long focused on voter registration drives and nonpartisan voter education on critical issues. But ProPublica reports a new generation of the League's leadership has taken on a more activist role in politics and drawn criticism from Republicans. In 2018, the League's CEO, Virginia K. Solomon, was arrested on Capitol Hill during protests opposing the confirmation of Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, who was accused of sexual harassment. Two years later, the League disbanded its Nevada chapter over a dispute with Democrats over gerrymandering. After Donald Trump's failed January 6th coup attempt, the League's board called Trump a tyrannical despot. Now, right-wing GOP candidates in many states are refusing to participate in league-sponsored debates. Suburban Chicago GOP congressional candidate Catalina Lauf accused the league of being anti-American and pushing a Marxist ideology. 
In Pennsylvania, only 30% of Republican candidates participated in the league's free informational primary voter guides compared to 70% of Democrats. That pushback sidelines the league at a time when misinformation has become a significant force in elections at every level. Without nonpartisan forums where candidates' unfiltered views can receive greater visibility and scrutiny, voters are the losers. In the Lower Ninth Ward in New Orleans, which was the epicenter of the destruction wrought by Hurricane Katrina in 2005, local interns are working to reclaim and preserve wetlands around the levee system while promoting environmental education in the poor African-American community. The grassroots project is sponsored by the Center for Sustainable Engagement and Development, staffed by local activists and experts who returned to the Lower Ninth Ward after Katrina. The group now has the attention of the Biden administration, whose members took a tour of the wetlands project in April. According to the Washington Post, the White House promised early and meaningful input, particularly from disadvantaged communities, in projects funded by the new infrastructure bill. New Orleans is on the front lines of climate change, with increasing temperatures and decades of coastal erosion. But this group of community activists is changing the way New Orleans' most vulnerable residents can recover and become resilient to natural disasters as they train the region's young people in ways that can be replicated in other cities. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. After a long delay, President Biden followed through on an important 2020 campaign pledge when on August 24th, he announced his plan to cancel $10,000 in student debt for borrowers earning under $125,000 a year. Borrowers who received a college federal Pell Grant that are given to students who have the greatest need qualify for up to $20,000 in debt relief. Biden has also extended a freeze on student loan payments one more time until the end of this year, and cut minimum monthly payments in half for undergraduate loans. Across the U.S., 45 million people owe $1.6 trillion in student debt, more than Americans owe on car loans, credit cards, or any consumer debt other than home mortgages. Predictably, most Republicans condemn Biden's student debt relief plan, declaring that it doesn't help Americans who never attended college and is unfair to students who have already paid off their loans. While welcoming the president's announcement, many student debt relief advocates and progressives felt the plan did not go far enough and failed to address the skyrocketing cost of higher education. Your reporter spoke with Cody Hunanian, executive director of the Student Debt Crisis Center, who assesses the strengths and weaknesses of President Biden's student debt loan forgiveness plan. This is a historic moment in our movement. This is the biggest student debt relief proposal ever achieved. Uh, we are, are proud that this president has delivered on his campaign promises to cancel at least $10,000 in student loan debt. 
And we feel that this moment opens the door for more relief in the future. This really sets a precedent that a president can use uh, many different authorities to try to provide relief to student loan borrowers. That's all the good news. The, the bad news is we didn't get everything that we had been fighting for. You know, namely, we didn't believe that this, that this proposal should have an income limit. Uh, $125,000 per individual and $250,000 per family is the limit for this proposal. But we know, having talked to borrowers, that there are many people who have a college degree that have higher paid jobs, but the student debt is so high, that monthly payment is so crippling, that they live, that they haven't been able to access the American dream in a way that their um, income uh, kind of implies. And so we thought that student debt cancellation should be across the board provided to everyone, regardless of income. And I should note, when it comes to this income argument as well, the research shows that black and brown borrowers may have higher income because of their education, but they have low wealth and low generational wealth because of systemic racism. So that part of the puzzle really doesn't fly. And we're going to continue to push for more relief for many other borrowers, including those with higher incomes. Lastly, the other piece we didn't want, we did not want an application process because the, the system is broken. It's hard to navigate. And unfortunately, borrowers are going to have to apply for this relief. And what do you make of the opposition we're hearing? There's no shortages of Republican politicians and media pundits criticizing President Biden's initiative here, even though it falls short for, for many progressives around the country. And I think one of the main right-wing talking points we hear in response to this student debt relief is it's unfair to force a blue-collar worker to pay for someone who got a Ph.D. in gender studies. That's one direct quote from one politician I won't even bother mentioning, but that's kind of like the conflict that the right wing is setting up. Well, you know, these politicians really don't understand who's impacted by the student debt crisis. You know, the New York Times did an analysis and showed that this relief is actually the most targeted relief towards the middle class that this president has achieved so far. Student loan borrowers are not just uh, wealthy kids from elite families in coastal communities like in California, New York, student debt impacts blue-collar workers across the country. You know, when I first started this work almost 10 years ago, we were hearing from many people, blue-collar workers in middle America, who were severely impacted by the Great Recession. And they went back to school on a promise that education could allow them to skill up and give them a second chance. And instead, they got crushed by student loan debt. So those politicians really don't know what they're talking about, to be, to be frank. Um, and honestly, I'm also hearing from other politicians that do, do not deserve to be named that somehow student debt cancellation is for slackers. And I could tell you, by the very nature of having student loan debt, that means you went to college, you were seeking higher education, you are ambitious, you worked hard, you had a dream for your future. These are the people that precisely have worked the hardest and really deserve access to the middle class, upper middle class, and the American dream. Cody, I wanted to ask you before we run out of time, what's your advice to people listening tonight who are happy about this Biden policy on forgiving student debt, but at the same time want to work, as your group is doing, for wider and deeper policy solutions to the cost of education and making it sustainable? 
That's a really important question. Step one right now, enjoy this win. You know, it's not often that we get this big and this transformative of a policy after a decade of advocacy. So let's take a moment and applaud how much we've achieved and how far we've come. But that doesn't mean we have to stop working. And I don't want the public to start ignoring the issue of student loan debt just because we've had the biggest win in our movement. So what we need to do is we need to double down on our call for additional cancellation. That means calling your lawmakers. That means continuing to do all of the things you typically do to get attention, like sharing your stories and signing petitions. We need to do that now more than ever because they're finally listening. And so I, I urge your listeners to continue to be dedicated to advocacy around student loan debt and continue to think about how you can share your story to, to try to create additional relief. That was Cody Hunanian executive director of the Student Debt Crisis Center. Learn more about the ongoing campaign to cancel unsustainable student debt by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. After Donald Trump's failed January 6th coup attempt and the vote by 147 Republicans to overturn the 2020 presidential election results, scores of U.S. corporations pledged to halt their campaign contributions to these politicians. However, more than a year later, many of these companies have reneged on that commitment. Fifteen major corporations, including AT&T, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Walgreens, and Walmart, have resumed directly contributing to Republican election deniers. Ten companies have donated to larger multi-candidate groups that include those who parrot Trump's big lie. 100 companies that pledged to suspend or reevaluate their political contributions to the GOP have since restarted making direct or indirect donations. Your reporter spoke with Jenna Grandy, press secretary with Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or CREW. Here she discusses CREW's recent research, which found that the U.S. fossil fuel industry, despite pledges to end contributions to GOP election deniers, has given more than $2.6 million to the Republican Sedition Caucus in Congress. Following the January 6th insurrection, like many of us, uh, corporations expressed their outrage and shock at what had happened. And several corporations issued public statements disavowing what had happened and were claiming they were going to sever their financial ties to those who opposed certifying the election and therefore interfering with the peaceful transition of power. But however, for many of those corporate and industry groups, those pledges only lasted for as long as it was publicly good for them to do so. They ultimately chose political access over our democracy and their own previously stated principles. When we launched our tracker in May 2021, 170 corporate and industry groups, so the political parts of corporations, uh, donated more than $2.6 million to those 147 members of Congress. Uh, that number is now over $53 million, with one, over 1,000 corporate and industry groups going back on their pledges. And, you know, as members of Congress fundraise on two- and six-year election cycles with strict giving limits, you know, these causes that they said they were making in 2021 effectively did nothing um, other than change the date on the checks that corporations were already going to write. We're focused on the um, the fossil fuel industry. Can you name some of the, the major oil and gas companies that have uh, supported these politicians that wanted to overturn the 2020 election 
and the amounts of money that have been given and received by these uh, right-wing politicians. Yeah, so when the, we first published this report, you know, we, it was um, just over a million dollars uh, had been given by these big oil companies. That number is now at over $2.6 million, and it's from companies like Valero that gave over $667,000. Marathon Petroleum gave $375,000. ExxonMobil gave over $205,000. Chevron gave over $134,000. Occidental Petroleum, $148,000. Noco Phillips, $46,000. And Coke Industries, well, not a top oil producer. Um, They they do support a lot of major oil producers, and they've given over a million dollars. So... It adds up quite quickly. Jenna, maybe you could talk a bit about the politicians who are receiving these corporate contributions and what these major corporations are getting or want in return. Some of the top recipients include minority leaders, Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, uh, John Kennedy, Garrett Graves. They're the top recipients of these uh, oil companies' uh, contributions. And ultimately, these companies aren't walking in with a check directly to the member of Congress and placing it on their desk, you know, on Capitol Hill. Uh, there are many sanctioned ways for a corporation to give to a candidate. You know, they're not giving it directly, but a workaround is that, you know, a politician likely knows who's behind the group that gave to a dark money group that boosted them or behind a significant campaign contribution. You know, that's something that would be related to them. And Corporate and industry groups can make political contributions to members of Congress's campaigns or to political groups like the DCCC or the NRCC, in which those funds are distributed to help members or spent to help boost their party. And uh, corporate industry groups can also give to these dark money groups that can try to influence elections through ads and mailers. And that makes it a lot harder for voters to understand who's trying to influence their elections and who's financing them. So members benefit from when corporate industry groups give directly to them, which is really unfortunate. And, you know, we're seeing two parties that benefit from corporate and industry group money. Um, And even members of Congress who want a public finance system acknowledge that they are currently beholden to campaign donors like these industry groups. And they don't want to spend their time making calls when they can be actually doing legislative work. But right now they're pulling the purse strings and members kind of are at their will. You know, I wanted to ask you about media coverage of these issues of the inherent corruption in our system. And particularly when you look at the situation currently where a lot of these big companies pledge not to support the folks who try to overturn the 2020 election and have now since gone back on that pledge. What kind of media scrutiny are these politicians in these big companies getting, if any? Well, I think it's a great sign that you and I are having this conversation because it means that we're paying attention to it and your listeners are paying attention to it by listening to this conversation and hopefully by checking out Cruz's work, you know, being like, hmm, let me, let me try to read into this a little bit more. And unfortunately, we do live in a society where money and politics is business as usual. But, and when companies stopped giving on January 6th, that was striking and newsworthy. Uh, and people took notice of that. You know, I'm hoping that reporters continue to take notice of when corporate and industry groups are going back on their word and which companies value access 
over our democracy and when our democracy already is in such a fragile place. So I'm hoping that we keep having these conversations and people keep talking about it because it really is so important. And the more that people are paying attention to it, I think there will be continued press coverage on that because people expect those things are being talked about on a national level. That was Jenna Grandy, press secretary with Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or CREW. Find links to CREW's research on corporate giving to Republican seditionist candidates by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. High atop Whiteface Mountain, the fifth highest peak in the Adirondacks of northeastern New York, the Atmospheric Sciences Research Center Field Station has been measuring data for more than 50 years. Their leading atmospheric scientists investigate the interaction of chemical, physical, geological, and biological processes that impact air, land, and water. The lack of industrial development in the area over that half-century means that the annual measurements have pretty much the same baseline. During the last five decades, acid rain from coal-burning plants in the Midwest has devastated life in the area's lakes and streams. Measuring acid deposition was one of the station's main objectives, but that data has also assisted researchers in studying the effects of climate change. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhus recently traveled to Whiteface Mountain where she interviewed Paul Kassan, the Atmospheric Sciences Research Center's operations manager. Here he talks about the work that's done at the field station on acid rain, climate change, and more. The long-term data sets that have been collected here for acid deposition studies are very valuable um, going forward with climate change studies. This is kind of our golden egg, uh, right? I mean, there's been a lot of work done here um, on biological indicators too, like forestry measurements and things like lichens and mosses that are growing on the mountain. We've more recently, I believe it was 2016 when the New York State Mesonet started. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but we have a station here. There's 126 of these weather stations across the state and uh, they're measuring um, all uniformly with the same type of sensors uh, in, a, in a very uniform scientific way, um, the weather and hence longer term climate um, across the state. Things like the rate of precipitation. We've been measuring precipitation here for the National Atmospheric Deposition Program since 1983. Um, so not just the quantity, but the chemistry uh, of the precipitation. And uh, those data sets are really valuable. I mean, anyone who wants to see the decrease in acid deposition can just go to the NADP's website and look at the chemistry of our, our rainwater samples and how it's changed since 1983 till now over a full pH unit of improvement, which it's a logarithmic scale. So that's really significant. And we've been seeing the same thing in our cloud water samples that we collect at the summit. To the extent that the, the whole chemical regime has changed of the cloud water, 
Um, this work has been funded by NYSERDA, the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority. And I think, uh, you know, our ground-based um, cloud monitoring platform here is um, really unrivaled in, in North America. Um, and, and it's one of the things that I'm, I'm really trying to focus on. I, I like to give tours and I always like to get back to the fact that the environmental monitoring that we're doing here is to assess the effectiveness of pollution controls. The big one was the Clean Air Act. And uh, we've been measuring trace gases here, ozone since 1973, oxides of nitrogen and uh, SO2. And these are uh, some, of, some of which are greenhouse gases and some are not, but very valuable data sets. How would you describe climate change happening in the Adirondacks? So that's one question. And I guess the other thing is, could that be extrapolated to other mountainous regions of the country and the world, or are they all unique? Well, they, they're unique, but they're all seeing the same. They're all seeing effects. Um, we have been collaborating recently with Mount Washington and uh, Mount Mansfield. U University of Vermont is looking to build an observatory on Mount Mansfield, repurpose an existing building, actually. We're looking to form kind of a network of mountaintop observatories where much like the Mesonet, where we're all using the same type of sensors and we're reporting the data in the same format so you can compare apples to apples. But as far as the climate change effects, we're definitely seeing uh, increase in overnight low temperatures. Um, that's kind of the easiest thing to see, especially in the winter. So the Mesonet also has a snow, snow measurement component to it. That Now we only have about six years of data on that right now. But um, it's important to see not only the depth of the snow, but the, the water equivalency. They're looking at things like the moisture content in the soils, the water equivalency in the snowpack for flood forecasting. So we have these melt events uh, in late winter. Sometimes we'll get these rain events and we'll, we'll have two or three feet of snow on the ground. And it's important to know um, for hydrologists, hydrologists and flood forecasting, how much water is gonna be entering the system. I think it also should be understood that climate change is a problem that's been evolving for many, many years and we're not gonna change it in the short term. We're not gonna turn the ship around in the next two or three years. That's just not how it works. Um, but we certainly can prepare and we can minimize our impacts by being less consumptive, using less energy, emitting less pollutants and just being more aware of the world around us. I, I'm so thankful for where I live here. I think we're, we are in a very good position going forward for a changing climate. I'm concerned about a lot of other areas of the country and the world, especially the Western United States. I think we've taken uh, water for granted and that's, that's to our detriment. I mean, there, there's been mega droughts in the past out in the Western United States and uh, it looks like we could be entering uh, another phase of that. That was Paul Kassan, Operations Manager of the Whiteface Mountain Atmospheric Sciences Research Center Field Station, affiliated with the State University of New York at Albany. Learn more about the center's work and the data collected there by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis 
of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WTND in Macomb, Illinois, KOWA in Olympia, Washington, Pala Res Radio in Pala, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.